Coincidentally, many of you have called in about the wokeism in the military uh, throughout the morning. And over time, we've seen this change in approach to military, military command, military culture, military structure. We've seen the imposition of ideology over the UCMJ, in my opinion. But where does this have its greatest effect? If you want to change, if you want to change the military of the United States, you don't just look at the top. You change those who will come in and serve for years, sometimes decades. Colonel Dakota Wood, a senior research fellow for defense programs at the Heritage Foundation, retired Marine as well, joins me now. Colonel, great to have you here. What, what a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. What, a, what a, an amazing topic we're going to discuss. Uh, there's a question often asked. You know the question. I know the question. Many in this audience know the question. And is when it comes to a decision made, whether by the commander-in-chief or senior officers, how does that increase the effectiveness of the unit or the military? And if that question can't be answered properly, then why consider doing it? Applying that principle to wokeism. Theory versus practice, right? We've got millennia of uh, practice about how military organizations are most effective on the battlefield when confronting an enemy force. I mean, that's really the, the, the ultimate test. So either the unit works together as a team, uh, you know, aligned in mission, uh, wanting to lend support to the person on the left and the right of them, trusting that those providing support from the rear are going to bring forward food and ammo, evacuate uh, wounded. Either that works or it doesn't. And so when we see things like critical race theory introduced that by definition divide people by skin color or ethnicity or religious beliefs, you know, if you take it down that road, and it pits people against each other, it's the, the exact opposite of team building, right, of, of effectiveness. And, uh, you know, the things like a chain of command, uh, where a commander can issue an order and the, the unit moves out, as opposed to elements within that unit then questioning well, who are you to be telling me to do X or Y? And, uh, and so these are very disruptive ideas that are being introduced into the U.S. military. And they're deliberate, Colonel, in my opinion, to yep. just that last point you made. If there is an illegal order given, we all, first one of the first things we get, the UCMJ, we understand what an unlawful order is and how to deal with it. So it's not as if we don't have structures in the military. This is a different approach. This creates those divisions, as you put it, which, again, when it comes to unit cohesiveness, uh, mm-hmm. destroys the very reason that the military exists. But this fish rots from the head in this sense. The role of the commander-in-chief of the United States, the president, outlined in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, is being violated here because of the responsibility that glows with that role of commander-in-chief. It's not bound to a political party, nor should it be. Right. You know, and there is this distinction between legal and stupid. <laughs> so you can have an order that is perfectly legal, and maybe it's unwise or it's stupid or it's harmful. 
Um, but I think we are crossing the boundary into illegal uh, when the military is built on uh, equal opportunity, uh, advancement by merit, mutual respo- respect and trust, all those sorts of things. And so then when we impose these policies that, again, by definition, differentiate classes or categories of people and a charge that one group of people is an oppressor, another group of people is oppressed, doesn't that violate, you know, all of the regulations and directives and the spirit of these sorts of orders that have been developed, you know, over the past century or so? And, and so I think in the case of CRT, it's both stupid and probably illegal. And, you know, the legal hounds can weigh in on this sorts of things, but it certainly isn't helpful. And it doesn't lend itself to increasing the military effectiveness of our fighting forces. Let's look at uh, and follow that track of stupid and illegal to a distinction uh, that is being made by General Mark Milley, arguing that it's important for cadets and officers at the military academy to be, quote, open-minded and widely read when it comes to critical race theory. This is the very same academy where a cadet chose to wear a communist T-shirt and display it under his uniform. That should have never been tolerated. And while I do agree that we should study and I certainly did, whether it was the Communist Manifesto, the uh, Mein Kampf, the writings of, of others to understand the enemy. There's a distinction for me here in imposing an institutional teaching of critical race theory as part of the existence of the military rather than more in the form of opponent and opposition research and study. Yeah, so if you're a kid coming out of high school and going into college, you can choose your course load and take a, a philosophy class where you're discussing the merits of various theories as opposed to something that's a fact, right? In the military, if you are imposing uh, these sorts of training things on kids that are eight, 17, 18 years old, all the way up to a 50, 55-year-old you know, senior officer or, or, or enlisted, that's a different kind of construct. And when somebody puts um, a book like Kendi's book on a professional reading list, it carries with it, uh, right, you know, the approval uh, of whatever that that military military chain of command is. So that's why uh, Admiral Gilday, uh, the chief of naval operations, is taking so much heat at including these sorts of works on a reading list. And these reading lists should be talking about team building, war fighting, uh, you know, the history of countries, you know, those sorts of things. So you would want your military, which is a different organization than a high school or a college class, right, uh, to focus on things that unite us, that not divide us, that you would want to improve recruiting, retention, morale of the force by building up what America represents, and all the opportunities that military service provides and the nobility of that. Why would you want to introduce something that disputes that and degrades it and divides people again into competing groups where folks now eye each other suspiciously about why you got to a certain position or why I'm in the position I'm in if it isn't something that's based on merit? So I just think that these are destructive policies 
and service chiefs like uh, Mike Milley and Secretary of Defense Austin and some of these others uh, are really off base in trying to reconcile or make excuses for the policies that the White House is uh, delivering. My guest, retired Marine Colonel Dakota Woods, Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs at the Heritage Foundation. Let's continue down this path uh, in the sense of, and to your point, rather, about choice in course load and choice in what is taught. When they make these decisions, I decided to check with some friends who've taught at uh, West Point, uh, one going back to the 90s. I went through the eras, two decades. And I asked them about the courses being taught and counter to this, was there a course that existed today uh, and could not find a course that taught the evils of communism outright, Mm -hmm. the deaths of over 100 million people worldwide through gulags and forced camps and various Mao's great, you know, 50 year reset and 100 year plan, what happened Mm -hmm. under Stalin, Lenin and others. So while they teach critical race theory and institutionalize it, they take out one of the very reasons for the existence of the United States military, which is to stand up against dictators, dictatorial, oppressive, and murderous regimes. Hitler killed millions of Jews, gays, Catholics, of people of all kinds. The communists killed multiple times over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 30 million dead leading up to Mao's Cultural Revolution, another 20 to 25 million that died of starvation and re-education camps and these other sorts of things. I mean, it's just absolutely disastrous. But I think what you've done here is you've turned over a rock to reveal a problem that I and my colleagues feel has been developing over the last 30 years or so within the military. And that's a drift away from the study of warfare and the differences between countries and their systems uh, in in this idea that by expanding one's perspective and mind and becoming kind of neo-statesman, you know, that uh, the joint interagency, that, that a military professional can look at economic theory and political theory and philosophy and all these other sorts of things. Well, in a broadly liberal education, yes, but is that how we want the military spending a great deal of their time when it should be studying tactics, operations, uh, really valuing the country that they're serving, their fellow citizens, you know, that they're putting themselves in in harm's way uh, to defend. And so we've seen this military establishment, primarily at the top, really veering off course. And we're seeing that in these academic institutions, whether it's at the service academy level, college age, students going through there to be young officers, uh, or as you go through command and staff and the various war colleges, where the material seems to be further and further removed from the study of history and the study of warfare, which I would prefer that our military professionals really spend time doing. You know, I mean, I don't need my local sheriff's office talking about economic theory. I need my sheriff's office looking at how do I stop drug runners, you know, abusive spouses, you know, dealing with domestic disturbances and break-ins and, you know, tomfoolery and that sort of thing. So I, I think we've, we've missed, missed the mark uh, for the last quarter century or more at the more senior levels of the military. And it's been driven by these political agendas that have been pushed forward over the last 25 or 30 years. Now, Colonel, how do you see it and how dangerous is it 
to indoctrinate a new generation of leaders, whether they go through the military academies, officer candidates, school in some way, or even those who remain in the enlisted corps or non-coms. How dangerous do you see it as a threat, not only to the military structure, but to this country and even as a threat extended to our allies around the world, if our military becomes a woke military? Yeah, I think there are two major things. I mean, I really took note of what you said about rotting at the head and this top-down sort of thing, but the military can also change from the bottom up. It's a recruited force. So where our youth grow up in a different world than you or I grew up in, you know, some decades back, right? Uh, Our cultural norms have been shifting. So you get, you know, a young man or woman coming out of high school, they want to join the Army, the Marine Corps, Air Force, what have you, and they're coming in with a different perspective because of what they have been exposed to and what has been normalized uh, within that peer group. So you can have a new population entering over the years that also starts to drive a bit change. And, and they don't have any experience, though, right, in military affairs. So it's incumbent upon the military leadership to ensure that they understand what military service is all about and what it takes to defend the country. The other path here that I want to really highlight is that absent terrorist attacks, you know, which obviously are bad, the country has experienced 30 years of relative peace and prosperity with the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, Cold War going away, what did we have to worry about on the global stage in the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, right? So it's been 30 years since we have really had to deal with big, large-scale conventional war. My fear is we will have to experience that again to see what military effectiveness actually means in combat. So in peacetime, you can have the luxury of entertaining these very idiotic ideas and trying all kinds of social experimentation and reorienting the forest to accept various kinds of people and how they view each other. You won't know what the effect of that is in data-driven terms until you experience it on the battlefield. Now, like I said very early on, we have millennia of experience that we should be drawing from, but we seem to be forgetting about that during this time of luxury. Colonel, I hope you can stay with me for a few more minutes. I know we had a, a set time for this, but but if you'll bear with me and if the audience Absolutely. will bear with me, uh, I think it's valuable that we continue this. Uh, the perspective of our allies and our enemies around the world, and I generally include three categories, allies, opponents, and outright enemies. When they see what is going on within our military, and the leadership or who those who purport themselves to be the leaders uh, at the top of this, how do they react to those three categories, allies, opponents, and enemies? Allies begin to question the military effectiveness of the United States that has provided a security umbrella for a half a century or more. So they, at the end of the Cold War, Germany, France, other countries, uh, absent this, you know, Warsaw Pact, Soviet influence, they started devoting more and more of their national resources to social programs because they didn't have this big threat. And the United States was always going to be there. Well, as Russia has rearmed, and as you see in Asia, very expansionist, aggressive uh, China, uh, Iran has the largest ballistic missile inventory in the Middle East. As these people or these countries have gone very, very aggressive, 
our allies now realize how weak they have become over the third, last 30 years. They look to the U.S., and the U.S. is two-thirds to half the size that it was in the past. And with these kind of woke ideologies, it really questions the aggressive martial spirit that you really need to see in the military. And so there's been a lot made of YouTube videos that have been posted uh, with Russia and China training. China has been very concerned about the feminization of Chinese young adult males. And so there's a call nationwide to toughen up their male youth, planning for some kind of a military conflict in the next 10 years or so. In Russia, all their recruiting videos are, you know, big masculine males protecting hearth and home and the families, you know, back uh, in, you know, in their, uh, their cabin or what have you. And it's a very militaristic, aggressive, martial sort of spirit. Meanwhile, on the American side, you see these cartoons about, hey, I joined the Air Force. I'm proud of my two moms. And, you know, we all need to get along and uh, embrace each other's lived experiences. So you can see the difference in those two. And so on the Allied side, it really calls into question whether the United States is the war-fighting, war-winning force that it was in the past. With our competitors and outright enemies, it emboldens them. It incentivizes them. Uh, it, it, it makes a, an opportunistic approach that if I don't move now to seize something, like China seizing Taiwan, those Americans might wake up and get their act together. So does it really incentivize more aggressive behavior in the next few years instead of quiet things down? Let's modernize the discussion. And again, I appreciate your time, Colonel. Let's modernize to where we are today with two new areas. We see more asymmetrical actions taken by state actors and non-state contractors. Mm-hmm. And we have cyber as a component, which you know is in some ways moving beyond asymmetrical to directed attacks. In my opinion, the attack on the pipeline, the colonial pipeline, was an attack on the state carried out by a contractor and possibly directed by others. The attack on the JBS food supply we have attacks on Microsoft, on our infrastructure uh, from a technology perspective. So asymmetrical and technology, while we build a culture uh, of wokeism, uh, how do you see that uh, working or not working together? There is a, a realism that comes with conflict but you have to recognize it for what it is. So to your point, if somebody conducts a cyber attack against critical infrastructure in the United States, you know, it takes down a power grid, disrupts medical care, uh, you know, flight control computers with the FAA, you know, something along those lines. Well, is that an attack or not? Is it a misunderstanding? Can we talk this thing out? Can we shake our finger as Biden did with Putin and hand him a list of these are critical infrastructure sectors that are offline. Well, what does that mean? Everybody, everything else is good to go. <laughs> I mean, what, what does somebody like Vladimir Putin, you know, a KGB agent, do with a list like that? You know, you just throw it in the trash. So I think this uh, kind of wokeism, you know, is a term that we'll just use as a blanket reference, um, causes people to lose the sight picture, military term there, on what conflict really is. And you need, if not a ruthlessness, at least a reality-based perspective of what competition and warfare is. 
uh, in the you know below the threshold of conventional combat, you know, these asymmetries. If the Chinese are sinking Vietnamese fishing vessels with maritime militia or Coast Guard craft, well, is that an act of war? I mean, what are you willing to do to prevent that from happening? So we can take a destroyer, sail it through the water to say this is international, take pictures, report it to the global community. But are we also talking about inserting a U.S. destroyer between a Chinese you know, ship of war and a civilian vessel? And, and what risks are you willing to run? We see that in the North Atlantic and then the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea and other places. So it, I think we've lost kind of a hardness you know, rooted in the reality of warfare and the conflict between nation states where things can always be negotiated. You can always get around um, a table at a Parisian tea salon or something like that like what the Biden administration is trying to do with the Iranians, you know, and getting them back into this nuclear deal uh, that was uh, you know, put together by the uh, Obama administration. So it's, it's a lot of talk and it's a lot of yammer. It's a loss of an appreciation for the reality of conflict and what your competitor or your enemy is very likely willing to do uh, while you are not wanting to wade into that and you're always wanting to de-escalate. You know, it's a softness of perspective. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it's the best way I know to talk about this change in mindset and how things like these social ideologies soften the edges and blur the lines and cause people to be less able to see the reality of the world for what it is. The last component of this, Colonel, uh, information warfare intelligence mm-hmm. will put that aside for the moment chinese actors in many ways influence in washington dc influence in american media influence on social media for instance their ministry of foreign affairs run by hua Shunying and others out there that are pushing this working with other countries that they have hobbled because of their use of economic and political power to push on this type of approach with our elected officials our civilian leadership and again and right to the White House and then flowing downward through uh, these these you know woke approaches and command coming out of the e ring or otherwise information and social uh, warfare in that sense is something that is not being attended to discussed or dealt with in my opinion very effectively in this country and I don't know if I believe that this in this administration will tackle that when they're just trying to make it even more woke. How dangerous is that? Very dangerous. If you're unwilling to say that something is a problem, then it's not something that you have to take action on. If you say that something is a problem and that presents a danger, then you're almost obligated to do something about that. So one easy way to avoid taking steps that might have risk associated with them is to just ignore problems and say that the problem isn't a problem. Uh, there is also a money-making component here. You know, if you notice the recent news on Nike trying to defend its association with the Chinese market or Hollywood uh, production companies changing scripts and imagery so that those films can be released in China in a billion-person market, right? So this is a, this is a mechanism that the Chinese have is access to their massive market and that if you don't play the game in this information warfare domain, right, you know, the scripts, the imagery, uh, product uh, marketing, if you don't play the game, then they will cut you off from access 
to that market and is just huge. China is the largest trading partner for Germany. It's the largest trading partner for the European Union. Russia is in that game, uh, being one of the primary energy providers for Germany. So how willing do you think Germany is to stand up and call Russia out for its predatory behaviors if Russia can cut them off from energy? So this information domain is linked to economic and trade. It's linked to um, an inability to be proud of who and what you are. Are we confident in the American identity and what America stands for? Or is it also squishy, you know, that you have a difficult time standing up for yourselves? You know, recall the meeting between China's diplomats and uh, Secretary of State Blinken in, in Alaska uh, just a month or so ago. And the Chinese stood up and just berated the American team for all of these problems apparently we have in the U.S. with race conflict and crime and all. And the American team didn't say anything. So, you know, what are they confident in? How do they define themselves? You know, is America something special or is it something to be embarrassed about? And our enemies exploit this in this information warfare domain, and they make every bit of use they can uh, to either give permission to markets, deny permission, or to take us to task in terms of damaging our sense of of, uh, seizing the moral high ground. And the United States being representative of something that is true and desired as opposed to something to be embarrassed about and then not not defend. There's so much more. I, I would love to continue this. We'll uh, we'll pick this up in other topics at another time, Colonel. But I really appreciate you staying on uh, longer than we had planned. Uh, these are important topics. These are important for every American not just in our military and an important topic for those around the world who are watching very closely what's going on in America. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think in this war of ideas, you know, the, the things that you're doing, for example, bringing these issues to the American public and to your audience, you know, what's more important than that? I mean, if we can't make people aware, then we certainly can't influence policy in ways that lead to a better country. Thank you, sir. Colonel Dakota Wood, a retired Marine colonel and a senior fellow at Heritage Foundation. Colonel, I appreciate the time again. I look forward to more of these discussions with you. Have a great day. Thanks. Let's take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 